Well, it's so good to be back with you today. I appreciate Pastor Isaiah bringing the message last Sunday. It was a strong message and grateful for him and uh, for the focus on the Lord and just the privilege we have to come together to worship as we do and to hear from his word. Uh, We were in Western North Carolina last Saturday. We had a family friend of ours who was married over in the western part of North Carolina and I did the wedding and it was, a, it was just great uh, joy to be a part of that and then on Sunday I was invited to preach the 141st homecoming uh, anniversary celebration at Red Mountain Baptist Church over in the eastern part of North Carolina in Durham County where we served many years ago and it was good to see some old friends and uh, be there to, to bring the word for that anniversary celebration, homecoming time. Uh, But I'm so thankful to be back with you today, and I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. And the text today is going to be verse 25 to 35. And what I want to do is I work my way through this message today with an emphasis on our finish focus is to really go section by section through this passage as it unfolds and as we think about the subject of discipleship specifically, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how that fits in to the church and the mission of God in his kingdom. Over the past 20 years, you have been incredibly faithful as a church in your generosity. As we have grown, expanded, and updated our facilities and our property and our ministry and mission emphases, it has required considerable resources. And in our finished focus, we are celebrating some things that God has done here during that time frame. You have given, in a combination of undesignated and designated giving, more than $26 million. You have given, as a part of that, $6 million directly to missions. And God has blessed us with 615 baptisms. The multiplying DNA of this church has been quite evident as we have participated in 24 new church plant partnerships and we have served on mission in 10 nations. The church has impacted our community in creative ways and we've been involved in countless ministry initiatives and partnerships here locally that the Lord has blessed us with through the local ministry of the church. And then from a capital uh, expansion perspective, we have purchased 11 adjacent parcels around the church as they have come available. We have added 32,000 square feet of space to our facilities. We've renovated our worship center and our student center, as well as purchased an office building that has served us quite well and is going to take us into the future also. And now our immediate goals are to retire our remaining debt, which we've been doing very intentionally and very purposefully over the past few years, to engage in continued mission projects as we've done with each of our capital emphases and to begin to address some deferred maintenance needs that come up along the way. So our total finish goal is $500,000. And I would say that that's the tail of the tape. Uh, That's the outline of the story, but there's much more to it. 
Uh, we are encouraging you today as we think about that story and our emphasis moving forward uh, to submit your commitment cards if you have not already done so. Uh, as I said, if you need one, we have more available to you in the back of the building at the Welcome Center. And uh, even before we got started today, we were already about 20% toward our goal through our initial commitments that people have made leading up to this. And we're going to continue to receive those even as we move through the coming weeks, uh, depending on where we are on our need. Now you say, what is most important about this? Why is it important to tell this story, to think about where we're going as a church? Well, it represents at the heart of it, people coming to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. It represents God's call on us to make disciples, to live out the mission of God, and to do so for his glory. Salvation is a gift from God. It is freely given to us by grace. There's nothing that we could do to deserve it. And when we come to follow Jesus as his disciple then he wants us to consider what that really means when we commit our lives to him. And that's what our text is about today. Let's focus on this time that we have together on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what is required of us. First of all, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, sit down and count the cost of following him. Let's pick up reading in Luke 14 and verse 25. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the scene was that great multitudes or crowds were following along with Jesus. These were people who were making their way to Passover, who were moving along in these large groups, this large crowd. And something that you'll note about the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus was always just a little bit wary about the crowds. And the reason that he was because, was because he knew that many of them were following him for selfish reasons or perhaps only for surface reasons, and he wanted to get past that. Now, I would say there's a modern parallel today that sometimes it's difficult to draw the distinction between the crowd and the church, between the people who have their own motivations for why they do what they do, and for the church who is committed to being disciples of Jesus. And you'll remember that Jesus was on his final journey to Jerusalem. As the scripture indicates, he had his face set toward Jerusalem and he was on his way to die on the cross. So with this crowd of people, he wants to make clear the requirements for being a disciple. A disciple by definition is a student, a learner, or a follower. And to believe in Jesus as savior requires and goes hand in hand with following Jesus as Lord. So it's not just an initial experience that we have with God in Christ that brings us to this point of being a disciple, but it's a lifetime of understanding the worthiness of Jesus and why we follow him as we do. Jesus in his life and his ministry, of course, declared the way of love. And at the same time, he demonstrated 
how significant the difference must be between our allegiance to him and our allegiance to everyone else and everything else in our lives. So Jesus draws two comparative statements about what we value. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, if you value things that are good, like human relationships, or if you value even your own life more than you value Jesus, then you cannot be his disciple. Now, interestingly, Jesus does not call for an unqualified hatred. And what I mean by that is that he had reiterated the Ten Commandments in Mark chapter 7, and he had said, honor your father and your mother. So Jesus is not going to command us to do something and then directly contradict himself and tell us to hate our parents in the sense of an unqualified hate. Likewise, he's also not telling us that we are to hate our own existence. Rather, Jesus is stating the point that out of love for him, our commitment and our love for him must be so great that if you compare anything else to it, love for your family, love for what you do, love for what you have, if any of that stuff supersedes your love for Jesus, then you've got things terribly out of order because your love for and your commitment to Jesus is to be first and foremost more than anything else in your life. In fact, I would say to you that it is the defining principle for life. It's the entire focus of your discipleship life and following after Jesus. And further, he says that disciples are to bear their cross and come after Jesus. This is very similar to Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, the people who heard Jesus say this would not have needed an in-depth commentary or explanation of what Jesus was talking about. In the Roman system, uh, it was a cruel system of execution, but it was very common. And the people would have drawn that conclusion based on what Jesus was saying. And before a, a man died on a cross, he had to carry his own cross. Or at least he had to carry the horizontal beam of the cross to his place of death, to his place of execution. And it's been said that when the Romans crucified a criminal, they didn't just hang them on a cross. They first hung a cross on him. And if you carried your cross, you were going to die on your cross. For example, when the Roman general Varus broke the revolt of Judas of Galilee in 4 BC, it's said that he had more than 2,000 Jews executed on the cross, on the road to Galilee. So when these people heard Jesus say, you got to take up your cross, you got to bear your cross, oh, they knew. And what they knew was that someone with a cross was on a one-way trip. To carry your cross can be taken literally as well as metaphorically. It can be taken as a symbol of dying to all personal desires. I like what one commentator said. He said, discipleship is a series of deaths. It's perpetual dying. 
Disciples follow Christ on a path of self-denial. Disciples embrace suffering as a part of life. I think C.S. Lewis had it right. He wrote that the Christian way is different. He said, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones that you think are wicked. I want the whole outfit. And what we understand from what Jesus says to us is that following Jesus as his disciple requires everything, a total commitment. And we ought to be willing to count the cost of what that means. Now, there's a second part to this. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, the call is to surrender everything in following him. Now, we'll go a little bit deeper here. Uh, Jesus uses two parables to challenge his hearers. One parable is about a tower and building it. The other is about a war. Uh, They make essentially the same point, but with a different focus. And I think the first point that is made is that life as a disciple is a lot like building. Verse 28, for which of you wanting to build a tower does it first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, All the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and he wasn't able to finish. This word tower likely referred to the tower of a fortress that would have been built on a city wall. That tower would have been used to overlook uh, the distance and anything that might be coming to harm the city. It could also refer to a tower that was built in a vineyard where a landowner would build a raised structure of some sort to be able to look out over his holdings and to make sure that everything was being taken care of as it should. But the idea is it's less about the type of structure than it is the need to count the cost of building it. And to calculate the cost or to count the cost was a phrase that referred to the counting of pebbles for the purpose of tallying business assets before they had the technology that we have today. And you know that if you're going to build a good building, a good building has to have a good foundation. So what would they do? They would dig down until they hit the bedrock. They would lay the foundation and then they would build the tower. In the parable, if they laid the foundation and they couldn't finish it, then onlookers would ridicule them. They would mock them. Oh, look at those people. They started something and they couldn't finish it. Oh, they laid the foundation, but they didn't have enough to complete the project. Oh, they were really doing something good, but they couldn't quite get it across the finish line. And there'd be all sorts of ridicule. And there's a spiritual parallel to this in our lives in that everything in life that we do requires us to count the cost and to understand what it means to surrender everything we have to follow Jesus. Maybe you're a young person and you want to accomplish something in the realm of athletics. It's going to cost you something. Or maybe you want to accomplish something in the area of academics. It's going to cost you something. 
or maybe you're on a career path and, and you've been building that career over time and, and you've been working hard. Listen, it has cost you something. But if you're going to take the next step, it's going to cost you something more. That's the way all of life is. It costs us something. And it's the same way for a church. In the 63 years of existence of Cross Lanes Baptist Church, the leaders and the members of this church have counted the cost many times and been willing to surrender what they had for the mission of the Lord and the glory of the Lord. You better know that the original charter members, they counted the cost. They were willing to lay their own assets on the line in order for us to get started as we have and to be where we are today. The people who have sustained the work through the years, they have counted the cost multiple times over the years, and they have been willing to surrender what they had to the Lord. And in the past 20 years, we've had to count the cost. We've had to ask the question, what's it going to take for us to make that expansion? What's it going to take for us to carry out that mission? What's it going to take for us to invest in that church plant? What's it going to take for this local ministry initiative? And now as we think and we dream and we pray toward the future, we are once again counting the cost. But as we count the cost, what we are doing is issuing the call for all of us to be willing to surrender everything that we have in following Jesus. And it's not just about the financial part of it. It's about us. It's about who we are. It's about our spiritual commitment. It's about our desire to bring glory to Jesus. It's about our desire to make a difference in our generation. That's what it's about. And as we do that, it requires a surrender. A surrender of everything we have in following Jesus. And you have to count the cost of how you're going to get there. Now, Jesus also teaches us here that life as a disciple is like waging war. Verse 31, the second parable. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In verse 33, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. He asks what I think is a rhetorical question in the parable. What king would not first decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose 20,000? Now, the price for miscalculating the situation here is worse than the cost of running out when you're trying to build a tower. If you misjudge the situation building the tower, you might get mocked and people might laugh at you and they might say, oh, those people weren't thinking, they didn't have enough to finish what they started, and there might be some type of ridicule. But oh, here the situation gets more serious because if you misjudge the situation in the battle, it could bring defeat and death for you, but also for a lot of people who are following along with you. And the king is under attack, and in this circumstance, the decision will probably be to send a delegation and to make peace with the attacker. Now, the call is not to get us to stir up enough commitment to become his disciples, but instead to realize that no one has the resources to follow Jesus apart from his empowerment. Discipleship is complete dependence on him to empower us to do his will. So what I say to you today is that the 
key to discipleship is dependence, but the key to dependence is surrender. You can't live in dependence on Jesus unless you have first surrendered to Jesus. But if you have surrendered to Jesus, then you can learn to live and understand what it means to depend on Jesus. He's the vine, we're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing of eternal value. So what we are saying today collectively as the body of Christ is that we want to live as disciples who've answered the call to commit all that we have. And what we are saying today as an expression of faith together as the people of God is that all that God has done in the past 63 years, all of the credit goes to him. Has God used faithful people? Yes, he has. But the focus is not ultimately on the faithful people. The focus is on God and what he's done to empower us and to use us. And as we think today, what we're asking is, how can we surrender what we have so that God can use us for his greater glory? And there's a very difficult part of this verse this section in verse 33, where he says, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, I read this three or four times while I was thinking about this message. And my flesh was saying, how can I make this more palatable? How how can I make this more acceptable? That's what my flesh was saying. And then In a resounding fashion, it came to me, as I knew when I started, that Jesus said what he said. And not only did Jesus say what he said, but in fact, it was the third time that Jesus makes this exact point in this gospel. He says, life does not consist of possessions, chapter 12. He says in chapter 18, sell them if they prevent you from following Jesus. And now this, Joseph Fitzmaier translated this verse like this. He said, similarly then, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all he has cannot be a disciple of mine. Now here's the conviction and the challenge. Consumer Christianity says that God is a product to be marketed and consumed at your convenience. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that, but that's the outcome of it. And it says if you don't have anything better to do, you don't have anything else scheduled, you know, if you're not really busy, then you can add some spiritual things onto your life. Kind of give God the tip of the hat, uh, if you will, the nod of the head, out of respect, of course. And Jesus says, if you don't renounce all that you have, you cannot be his disciple. Now, this is a radical call to commitment. And I think there is a message here in life stewardship. And the message in life stewardship is, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. So it changes our perspective about how we look at our lives, how we look at our possessions, how we look at our gifts. And we're not saying, God, what is the least that we can get by with? That's not what we're saying. We're saying, God, it's all yours. Not just the part that I take and write down on that little commitment card for a special initiative at my church. 
It's not just the amount that I decide to hold out and, and give to my church on a regular basis. It's not just the time when I go for one hour and I serve at the church on a Sunday morning. Or it's not just the special project that I engage in. No, it's all of life. That's what it is. It's all of your life. It's all of your family. It's all of your possessions. And Jesus is saying, you must be willing to surrender everything to follow him. And if you'll do that, I promise you, you'll gain far more spiritually and eternally than you ever surrendered to begin with. And we cannot follow Jesus as his disciples if he does not have our hearts. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One commentator said, Jesus is not a minimalist when it comes to our possessions. Meaning that it's not how little one can give this the question, but how much God deserves. Now that makes some people uncomfortable. And I would just say to you that if that makes you uncomfortable, perhaps God is trying to move you past a spirit of greed in your life. Perhaps God is trying to move you beyond a worldly-mindedness to a heavenly-mindedness. Perhaps God is trying to root out covetousness in your life. Maybe God is trying to rid you of selfishness in your life. And he's calling you to a better way. He's calling you to a higher road. He's calling you to devote all that you are and all that you have and all that you hope to be for the glory of King Jesus because he is worthy. That's what he's calling you to. And if anything holds us back from who Jesus is calling us to be and what Jesus is calling us to do, we cannot be his disciples. Jesus said that. And he meant what he said. And then third, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to significantly influence those around you for good. Now verse 34. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. This statement and those similar to it in Matthew 5 and then Mark 9 are somewhat difficult for us to relate to, I would say, in the modern age. We use salt in our food that is very pure, and we don't think much about the fact that salt could possibly lose its salty characteristics. Uh, when I was in Israel this summer, uh, I was at the Dead Sea, and I bought this little variety pack of salts. And it's little containers about that big, and it's all kind of flavors. It's like garlic salt, pepper salt, and I don't remember what the other ones were. But let me tell you, this salt was so pure, it is so pure, it's almost overwhelming. It's like you almost can't handle it. It is so pure. It is so strong. And that's really in reality what, what our spiritual life should be like. If we're going to be the salt of the earth and the salt of the world, then it ought to be strong. It ought to be pure. It ought to be focused on what it was intended for. And in Jesus' day, salt was used to preserve food and to enhance flavor, to treat wounds. They used it as ceremonial offerings. Uh, they used it as a unit of exchange. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in it. But the illustration that Jesus gives is that the salt could sometimes be polluted with other substances. And if moisture hit the salt, it could evaporate and leave behind impure minerals. 
So the salt lost its saltiness and it was worthless for anything else. Had to be thrown out. Jesus makes this stark statement that it's it's not even worth throwing it on the manure pile. It's no good. It's of no use. And once the saltiness is gone, it can't be restored. And the desired characteristics are no longer present. It becomes worthless. And Jesus' point here is obvious even to those without a knowledge of salt and how it's used. If someone loses their ability to accomplish what they thought they were setting out to do, then they're going to be of no use. Now, what are we to make of this idea of the useless salt being thrown out? Now, whether Jesus is referring to someone who claimed to follow him and was not genuine and was being judged, or a genuine believer who is taken out of this life under the disciplining hand of God because they've lost their way, these are unclear. But let me just tell you, this is a serious matter. And the greater point is that salt is only good if it's salty. That's the only way it's good. And a disciple of Jesus is only useful if they are a genuine disciple, if they're living according to their purpose. So as disciples, we are the salt of the world, and we have this opportunity. We've been created for good works, is what Ephesians says. So we have this incredible opportunity to to permeate the culture around us and to make a difference for righteousness. But did you know that the value of salt is only as good as it being shaken out? It's no good when it's in the container. You know that salt I bought at the Dead Sea this summer? It's got pretty little containers, little gold tops on it. That salt's useless as long as that that top's down on it and it's not shaken out. And when we think about getting out of the salt shaker, what we're thinking about symbolically is sharing our faith. It's the gospel going out. It's doing good works for the glory of God, not so that we can gain righteousness or somehow get credit for ourselves. And we want to be shaken out into the world so that we are useful for God. And Jesus is calling every disciple to live a holy life full of good works to make a difference in the world. Now, finally, Jesus says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Do you know you never go wrong if you listen to the words of Jesus? You're never going to get sent down the wrong path if you follow the word of God. Why are we here this morning? Is it so you can hear the words of a preacher or the words of Jesus? Why do we come together in Bible study as we do? So that we can hear the word of the Lord. And as we hear the word of the Lord, we overcome self and we get our focus where it needs to be. And what we need as a church is we need to hear the words of Jesus. We need to take those words of Jesus to heart. And we need to listen to what Jesus has to say. That's what we long for. Because we want to follow Jesus and we want to do what he's called us to do. And you can never go wrong if you listen to the words of Jesus. But you know, also to finish requires endurance. Talking about finishing finishing this chapter so that we can move into a new chapter. 
that requires endurance. I'm so grateful that there have been people in the life of this church who have endured in well-doing. There's some people in this church that have been with this church nearly for the distance. And they've endured. They are our examples. We stand on their shoulders. Some who endured have already gone to be with the Lord. They're in his presence. But their endurance is an example to us. And that's what it takes. As I look out across this congregation today, I see the faces of many people who have counted the cost and endured. Many people who have been here through thick and thin, through the dark seasons as well as the bright ones. Many people who have kept their eyes on Jesus rather than on people and their own preferences and what was comfortable to them and what made them feel good. Many people who have laid their possessions on the line because they saw a a greater mission and a greater vision than what was in front of them. And they've endured And that's what God is calling for from this generation. If you're going to endure, you've got to get over yourself, first of all, and surrender to him. You've got to hear the word of the Lord and understand what it means to follow him as his disciple. But just as I look out and I see the faces of the many who have endured, who know so much of the story of this church family, I also think of many people who dropped along the wayside. You know, some of them dropped along the wayside because of their own foolishness, their own sin, their own rebellion. Some dropped along the wayside because they weren't genuine to begin with. Some dropped along the wayside just because they got tired and they were drawing from their flesh and their strength rather than from the spirit. Some dropped along the wayside because they got caught up in their own preferences or their own ideas rather than what God was doing in the collective body of Christ. My prayer for us is that we would be able to finish so that we can start anew and continue to move forward. I love a story I've shared before in the past. Some of you might remember it about a Japanese marathon runner by the name of Kanakuri. He competed in the domestic qualifying trials for the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. Kanakuri set a marathon world record and was selected as one of only two athletes that Japan could afford to send to the event uh, that year. But shockingly, he disappeared during the 1912 Olympic marathon race. He had had this long 18-day trip to Stockholm, first by ship and then by train through the Trans-Siberian Railway. He needed five days to recover for the race. He was weakened by the long journey to Japan from Japan to to Stockholm, and he lost consciousness midway through the race. A local family gathered him, collected him, and helped him, and he was so embarrassed by his failure that he returned to Japan and he never notified the race officials. Swedish authorities considered this man missing for 50 years before they discovered he was living in Japan. In 1967, they offered to give him the opportunity to complete his race, and he accepted, and he completed the marathon in 54 years, eight months, six days, five hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. And here's what he said. 
It was a long trip. And along the way, I got married, had six children, and ten grandchildren. Church, I'm here to tell you today, we are on a long trip. We are. It's a long trip. We are incredibly grateful for the past. But you can't live in the past. You can't live in the past. You can be thankful for it and you can build on the past, but you can't live in the past. You know what happens to churches that get caught up in living in the past, whatever that is? They're as good as dead. They're done. If their story is only about what God has done in the past and it's not of the power of the Spirit in the present and the hope and the prayers of what's going to happen in the future, you are as good as done as a church. So we're grateful for the past, but we're asking God to blow the wind of the Spirit through us. And the reason we want the wind of the Spirit to blow through us is because we have a Savior who is worthy. We have a Savior who is willing to leave heaven and to come to earth. The one who was sinless took on sin for us, for people like us. And he endured our sin. He endured the wrath of God on that cross. And he was crucified and buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And the best news that I've got to tell you today is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. He's raised from the dead. It happened in the past, but it has a very real effect on the present. And my question is, what are we going to be in the future? What are we going to be in the future? A finish marks a new beginning. How will God use our church in the future, in the next 20 years or beyond in ministry and mission? You see, the generation to come is going to have a story to tell. And that story is going to be one of two things. It's either going to be the people who laid it all on the line in 2022 and beyond set the stage for continued growth and flourishing of Cross Saints Baptist Church. Or it's going to be that church had a really rich history and tradition. Man, they did some amazing things. But they kind of just stalled out. Kind of got to a point, and that was, that was the story. I don't want our collective testimony to be that we stalled out along the way because that is not what God intends for us. We want to move into the future in power and for the glory of God. And what that means for us specifically is that we want to be able to grow in number and in spirit through our worship small group ministry and mission as we see people come to faith in Christ and see disciples develop and we see kingdom multiplication take place. Our prayer is that we would see another 600 people go through the baptismal waters as a public profession of their faith. Our prayer is that while we have partnered with 24 new church plants, that by the time 20 more years passes, that this church would have directly been engaged in at least 50 new churches being planted. That we would be on mission as we are now in our four primary locations around the world, but adjust that as necessary. 
that we would continue our current commitments, but we would change focus as the Lord directs, that we would hear the word of the Lord, and we would continue to mobilize our church family for praying and giving and going and sending. You see, that's what we want to give our lives to. And that takes all of us. And I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're one of those people that you've endured. You're, you're part of the story. You're, you're the ones who have said, yes, let's, let's go for that initiative. Yes, let's move forward in that mission. Yes, let's start that new community ministry. Yes, let's do this evangelism effort. You've been one of those people all along the way that you have led with yes. Yes, Lord, make it so. Or maybe you're one of the people who's been on the fringe. You've not been engaged as you could. I ask you not only what is the story of this church going to be, but what's the story of your life going to be? What kind of disciples are we? Are we holding things back from the Lord? Or are we saying, Lord, this is everything I've got. This is everything that I am. This is a mission and a kingdom that is so much bigger than me, so much bigger than what I want. It's so much bigger than my personal preferences. It's it's so much bigger than my life of convenience. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. That's the call. And that's his call for you individually, and that's his call for us as a church. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, help us listen well to your word, to your spirit, to your son. We are a grateful people for all that has transpired through the short life of this church as compared to eternity. We thank you for the faithful people on whose shoulders we stand. I pray that we, as the body of Christ, would provide shoulders that are strong for the next generation to stand on. That we would hold nothing back. God, root out our selfishness. Root out our pride. Root out our personal agendas. Root out our distraction. And help us to be like Jesus. God, we believe and we pray in faith that you are going to continue to do great things through this church. I pray that our goals, when these years have passed, would have seemed small. That you would have done in greater ways and more abundant than what we could have even imagined. Or what we could have even asked for. And it would all be for the glory of King Jesus. God, when we get to heaven someday, we're not going to be there to take the credit. We're going to be there to give the praise. And I pray that as we come and we give the praise to Jesus that we would realize all that you've brought us through and how you've been faithful to us as individuals and you've been faithful to us as families. You've been faithful to us as a church. And we are so grateful. Help us not to be like those lepers that walked away from Jesus without gratitude after he healed them. Help us to live with a deep sense of gratitude for all that you've done in our lives. So, Lord, as we step out on faith in a new season, lead us, guide us, provide for us, and use us however you see fit. I pray if there's anybody here today who has never come to a saving relationship 
a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they'd be willing today to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus by faith and be saved. God, however you work in us now, help us to say yes and to follow. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.